0: This is the International Anthony Burgess Foundation Podcast. Every year, the Burgess Foundation hosts the Anthony Burgess Lecture, a series in which we invite writers to Manchester to talk about aspects of their work. Now in its 10th year, the Burgess Lecture has featured writers including Jonathan Meads, Blake Morrison, Tash Orr and Margaret Drabble. For the Burgess Lecture 2021, we invited Laura Tunbridge, Professor of Music at Oxford University, to talk about her book, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces. Laura's lecture was recorded live at the Burgess Foundation on the 14th of October, 2021, and was introduced by Will Carr.
1: Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Burgess Foundation. My name's Will Carr, and I'm the Deputy Director here. And thanks so much for coming to to this, which is one of our first events back the long closure. So thank, thanks for all, to you all for being here. And it's our annual Burgess Lecture, which is uh, a long-running series. I think this might be the tenth one we've done, in which we invite a leading writer to give us a talk that takes, as its starting point, an aspect of Burgess's work. And previous speakers have included Jonathan Meads, uh, Blake Morrison, talking about journalism, and Margaret Drabble, talking about literary reputation. And this evening, I'm delighted to welcome Laura Tunbridge to talk about Beethoven and her fantastic book, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces. Anthony Burgess loved Beethoven, whose music appears throughout his work, especially in Napoleon Symphony, which is a novel that takes as its structure, Beethoven's Third Symphony, and also A Clockwork Orange, in which Ludwig van is Alex's very favorite composer. Laura's book, though, uh, tells the story of Beethoven's life, through nine of Beethoven's most important works. And it's, well, I I love the book. It's a hugely readable and compelling account, and it really gets to the heart of who Beethoven was. Laura herself is an acclaimed musicologist, and she's written widely on Schumann and on song cycles and much more. She's taught at the Universities of Reading and here in Manchester, and she's now at Oxford, where she's Professor of Music. So please give her a warm welcome.
2: Thank thank you very much, Will, and uh, thank you all very, very much for coming. Um, It's lovely to be here, and it's nice to be back in Manchester, and it's lovely to see so many old friends, which was slightly terrifying, but now with the lights, I can't see you. So, um, see, it's a real pleasure to be here, and thank you very much for the invitation. Um, I would like, in fact, to dedicate this talk to another old friend, composer and writer Alan Shockley, Um, I was a contemporary of his and his wife Jessica at Princeton, and was really sad to hear of his death last year. Um, Alan was already working on music and literature as a graduate student, and it's been a real pleasure to read his subsequent publications about Burgess and music while preparing this talk. I'm going to talk mostly about Beethoven this evening, but want to bring in some perspectives on his life and works from Burgess, whose admiration for the composer is well known and has been much discussed. This is, of course, primarily because this is the Anthony Burgess Lecture, but it's also because I think there's an aspect of Burgess's writing that connects to and shines light on how to understand Beethoven biographies, which is less often explored than considering the musical structures of the novels or the uses and abuses of Beethoven's music in A Clockwork Orange. Namely, there are reflections on the process of telling life stories in Burgess's fiction, which can be related to Beethoven's biographies directly, And indirectly or that at least that could be repurposed for beethoven Uh, for starters um, there is something of the composer in the flatulent enderby writing on the lavatory filling the bath with his papers and there's a famous picture of beethoven's final study which i hope you can see clearly enough here with manuscripts piled on top of his instrument Um, and as we know from anecdotal descriptions typically a chamber pot beneath the keyboard, although that's not included in this image. It seems like a rather Burgessian kind of scene. Um, I'm not trying to be flippant by starting with the scatological side of Beethoven. It's clear from his correspondence that he's suffered immensely from gastrointestinal problems for many years, and while they might not be a most, among the most romantic of his afflictions, they were very real. There's a line to be trodden between the all-too-human side of Beethoven and the imperious visage that glowers down from pedestals and portraits. As Peter Kivy puts it, the Beethoven legend of the deaf, distracted, rumpled, and unruly creator is common coin. Burgess celebrated that side of the composer. However, in his review of Maynard Solomon's Beethoven biography, he reminded readers that it was only long after the composer's death but it was revealed that Beethoven's first major biographer, Anton Schindler, had fabricated dozens and dozens of conversation book entries, and these were the notepads that Beethoven asked visitors to use when he'd lost his hearing. They could write down questions for him, and he could respond um, in speech. With some glee, Burgess continued, moreover, the hagiographical tendency of many biographies got in the way of presenting the squalor, the clownishness, the downright malice, the drinking and drabbing. It was not right for the composer of the Ninth Symphony and the last quartets to vomit in crapula and frequent brothels. Yet, Burgess implies, Beethoven did some of that, and indeed, the new editions of the conversation books and other recent research has proved him more or less right. Before I go any further, and I realise a lot of you will be familiar with this, but I thought it might still be helpful, um, to provide a brief sketch of Beethoven's life. He was born in Bonn in 1770, and raised in a family of musicians, soon entering the profession himself. Beethoven wasn't a child prodigy in the manner of Mozart, but displayed talent and dedication to his work. He didn't receive much formal education, and he had a difficult relationship with his father. However, he was nurtured by the Bonn nobility, from the Elector of Cologne, Maximilian Franz, to Count Waldstein, both of whom encouraged him to study with Haydn. His first trip to the musical hub of Vienna was cut short by the death of his mother. His second trip, in 1792, was prolonged by Napoleon's invasion of the Rhineland. Indeed, Beethoven never returned to his hometown. Instead, he established himself in Vienna first as a virtuoso pianist, renowned for his improvisations, and as a teacher, and gradually as a composer. Beethoven concentrated mainly on music for his own instrument, composing, performing, and publishing piano trios, sonatas, and concertos, and also began to compose for the favored and fashionable genres of the Viennese aristocracy, many of whom maintained their own in-house ensembles to play string quartets and symphonies. From the publication of his Opus One in 1795 until his death in March 1827, Beethoven composed music that had come to be celebrated for its invention, transcendence, and profundity as well as many works that show him to be as much as the next artist, a product of his time, trying to make a living however he could. That said, he did benefit from generous aristocratic patronage that granted him a degree of artistic freedom few have experienced before or since, and in turn has served to illustrate Vienna's musical supremacy. His life wasn't untouched by tragedy. From around the age of 30, he became aware that he was losing his hearing. He never married, despite wanting to, and he had a tortured relationship with his remaining family, especially his nephew and his brother's widow. Yet somehow those struggles have enhanced the appreciation of Beethoven's artistic achievements. Many people have questioned whether the way Beethoven is idolised is healthy for the perception of classical music. It's been observed that in terms of concert programming and broadcasting, he dominates even all the other great white straight dead men, There's a remarkable pie chart showing the minuscule amount of music by women featured in a certain orchestra season, dwarfed by male composers who are, in turn, dwarfed by Beethoven. My recent book on Beethoven is structured around nine of his pieces, um, and this is to introduce his work in a variety of genres and hopefully to give some historical insights into his life. This evening I'm going to concentrate on one of those, and perhaps one of the most famous, the Third Symphony, known as the Eroica. I've been particularly interested in the ways that man and myth have been entangled over the centuries with what we take to be the facts of the composer's life becoming important means for interpreting his music, to the extent that even if we discover that those facts are fictions, they remain vital for understanding how we've come to understand and value Beethoven. The Third Symphony, of course, is also embedded in the structure and imagination of Burgess's novel Napoleon's Symphony, which I'd like to suggest can be seen as part of a long tradition of constructing and adapting ideas of heroism according to one's medium and message. Or, as Enderby reflects in the Clockwork Testament, which I had on my preliminary slide, perhaps posthumous life was better than the real thing. Beethoven began to plan his Third Symphony in 1802, composing most of it over the summer of 1803 and completing it the following year, when he had the unusual opportunity to rehearse the symphony at the Viennese palace of Prince Lobkowitz, the dedicatee of the work. And this is Lobkowitz and what's now known as the Eroica Saal, or the Eroica Room, where uh, the symphony was first rehearsed and indeed performed. The rehearsals were necessary Although the symphony is in the conventional four movements, its scale and complexity required more practice than concerts typically were given. It also allowed for some feedback, though characteristically, Beethoven resisted recommendations to shorten and lighten the work, instead taking the unusual step of printing a preface to the first violin part, which cautioned that because the symphony was, quote, purposefully written to be much longer than usual, it should be performed near the start of a concert rather than at its end, so that the audience is not too tired to appreciate its effect. Near the start, Beethoven clarified, meant after an overture, an aria, and a concerto, a reminder that concert programmes in those days were considerably longer and more varied than we're used to now. At the Benefit concert at which it was premiered on the 7th of April 1805, the New Symphony split critics, some of whom felt it was too long and disjointed, but recognising that it had beautiful passages. Others declared it would only be appreciated by the composer's very special friends, uh, but would baffle the uneducated. And this is an early instance of the notion that to truly appreciate this music, one needs to be initiated into its secrets, a problem with which classical music still struggles. There were also complaints about its continuous tumult. It was thought too noisy and unmelodious. And again, this is now a common fault of new music, or has been. Although I said that the third symphony was dedicated to Lobkowitz, the work bears another title, one actually given by the composer, Heroica. Beethoven described it as a heroic symphony composed to celebrate the remembrance of a great man, and there were variations on this, such as eventually celebrating the death of a hero in later editions. Um, its opening bars... <laughs> The critical reception of the Third Symphony makes it clear that it was not only, or simply, the quality of Beethoven's music that mattered that made a difference to how it was heard, but the words that introduced it. Who was the hero? There was a long tradition of characteristic pieces dedicated to great men, especially from the French tradition of Gossack and Carabini. Beyond the composer's stated program, or at least title, um, people started to add notes um, to be read before a performance. For example, for the Leipzig premiere in 1807, the programme announced the Eroica as a grand heroic symphony, consisting of, one, fiery splendid allegro, two, lofty solemn funeral march, three, vehement scherzando, four, grand finale in strict style. The chosen adjectives, fiery, lofty, and vehement, all associated with the romantic sublime, seemed to have encouraged a more serious approach to the work. That same year... Berlin critic Heinrich Herrmann, writing under the pseudonym Ernst Voldemar, used overtly poetic language in his review of the Third Symphony. We feel called forth to an almost Shakespearean world of magic, he wrote. In these extremes and in the frequent and abrupt exchanges of fearful, violent, percussive rebukes with the most ingratiating flowers of melody, lies a great part of Beethoven's humour. By invoking Shakespeare, no less and by attributing to the glaring and bizarre aspects of Beethoven's music a sense of humour, although perhaps by that he meant more a general mode of being, Voldemar and the critics who followed in his wake suggested that such symphonies resembled great drama. Others found the noisiness of the symphony to evoke the tumult of the battlefield. For Wilhelm von Lentz, the opening chords were two blows from the opening cavalry that split the orchestra... (laughs) By 1825, critic Adolf Bernhard Marx felt able to describe the first movement of the symphony as a battle from which the hero emerges victorious, the second as a walk through a corpse-strewn battlefield, the third as troops massing together, the fourth as the warriors returning home in peacetime. Beethoven apparently was pleased by this narrative. References to the noisiness of Beethoven's music tells us something about how challenging the sound of his works could be for his contemporaries. These days, it's easy to hear in performances by energetic symphony orchestras what we might imagine to be a musical heroism in this music. However, like all composers of the early 19th century, Beethoven's works were less often heard in their original scoring than in arrangements for piano or small chamber ensembles, meaning that they could be played at home or in other social settings. The Eroica was no exception. To give a sense of what such an arrangement can sound like and how transformative it can be, I'd like to play a recording of passages from the scherzo, first by Karajan and the Berlin Philharmonic, and secondly in a piano quartet arrangement of the same movement. And this was an arrangement that Beethoven didn't make himself, but it was one that he approved. So I'll play to you first the Berlin Phil and actually think about how the orchestra is being used in this, and then I'll play the piano quartet version and really just think about how different it sounds. Thank you. you. <laughs> So here is the piano quartet, this is the start of the movement and then I'll scoot it. Just in terms of actually how different that sounds from symphony orchestra to piano quartet, how the very famous passage for the horns in the symphony becomes something for strings, which actually is a very different experience. If that's your only encounter with the Eroica Symphony, you never hear it live in that way. It's a very different sound world um, to what we assume is the case today—the very polished orchestral sound. Like a lot of the very well, like a lot of the big stories from Beethoven's life, the Heiligenstadt Testament revealing his deafness. The Letter to the Immortal Beloved, it wasn't until after Beethoven's death that the notion that the symphony's hero was Napoleon Bonaparte gained currency. No direct reference was made to Napoleon in the initial concerts and reviews of the work. Politically, that was unsurprising. The Austrian and Russian armies had been routed at the Battle of Austerlitz in December 1805. Vienna's hospitals were full of injured soldiers from both sides. And while a peace treaty ended the occupation of the city, there were financial penalties, taxes rose, and food was scarce. In fact, it was only in 1838 when Ferdinand Ries published his biographical notes on Beethoven that the symphony's initial dedication to Bonaparte was revealed. Ries relayed how, like many of his generation, Beethoven had initially been impressed by Napoleon's revolutionary aspirations and achievements. However, on hearing that Napoleon had been crowned emperor on the 2nd of December 1804, Beethoven exclaimed, Is he then too nothing more than an ordinary man? Now he will trample on all the rights of man and only indulge his ambition. He will exalt himself above all others and become a tyrant. Annoyed, he ripped the manuscript in two. No autograph manuscript of the third symphony survives, so perhaps Reese's account holds true. Uh, that's the one. Um, What's more, on the title page of the fair copy owned by Beethoven um, is written, Grand Symphony, Something Scratched Out by Mr. Ludwig van Beethoven. The missing line, entitled Bonaparte, has been scratched out so vehemently that there's a hole in the paper, while in pencil, which isn't quite so clear on this version, in the composer's hand, is added written for Bonaparte, along with instructions for tidying up the score and for how to incorporate the third horn. In the absence of Ries' explanation, and with access only to the published score, Beethoven's Great Man was left unnamed. Whether or not the Third Symphony is or should be associated with Napoleon, the bellicose aspects of the Third Symphony have been repeated again and again. In 1903, the Italian artist Antonio Rizzi depicted a procession of military casket-bearers with the ruins of the battlefield smouldering in the distance under the title Beethoven, Symphonia Eroica, Two tempo presumably tempo the second movement two skulls with black turbans glare out from the prince frame the precise reference is uncertain but Beethoven's march was well known in Italy and military defeats in Africa were still fresh memories I find it intriguing that as well as the title Ritzi wrote out the opening music of the Eroica's second movement the funeral march including some harmonizing chords um beneath the image, suggesting a soundtrack, at least for the musically literate. This is what it says. Sounds- It's a melody that's had a rather interesting posthumous life, featuring not only in this Italian print, but alluded to in musical works such as Richard Strauss's Metamorphosen for 23 solo strings, composed in the last stage of the Second World War. Towards the end, as the cellos and double basses reveal um, the source of the material, was the original theme from the Eroica. You probably can't see this, but here it says in the score, that melody in memoriam. It's unclear whether he was commemorating casualties of war, the bombing of his beloved Dresden and Munich opera houses, or the destruction of Germany more broadly. It's even been suggested and refuted that the fallen hero of Metamorphosen may have been Hitler, with a parallel being made between Beethoven's withdrawn dedication to Napoleon and Strauss's turn away from Nazi politics. For all that music can have stories laid upon it, this fundamentally abstract form of art is continually evasive, shedding and gaining meaning, at every historical turn. Never more so, perhaps, than when Burgess wrote his Napoleon Symphony, hoping that Stanley Kubrick would pick it up as a screenplay for his proposed biopic. On being turned down, Burgess published it as a novel instead, which appeared in 1974. It's divided into four movements, copying the layout of Beethoven's Third Symphony, and there are moments in the action that Burgess subsequently explained corresponded to moments in the music. For instance, Napoleon as he puts it, gives Josephine two sharp love tweaks on the earlobes, corresponding to the two sforzando chords at the start of the symphony. And in the coda of the movement, there is, quote, a kind of bugle call is heard outside, along with a fart like the tearing of paper. That is Beethoven ripping the dedication of the Eroica to Bonaparte and announcing his opening theme, no longer to be permitted to glorify tyranny. At the end of the scherzo, Beethoven's horns become hollow hunting harmonies, drums, 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 (coughs) drums, all over. While repetition is acknowledged by Burgess to be one of the main stumbling blocks on trying to base a novel on a musical form, in the second chapter or movement of the Napoleon Symphony, he attempts to use repeated phrases as if they are something like the themes of a symphonic movement. It begins with verse, heard first as Napoleon in Moscow, as a nightmare about his death by water, and as Josephine dreams of becoming Queen of the Nile. There he lies, exsanguinated tyrant, O bloody bloody tyrant, see how the sin within doth incarnadine his skin from the shin to the chin. The lines recur, much as Beethoven would repeat a melody sometimes broken up, sometimes presented whole. The words become a rhythm. Dum di-dum, di-dum di dum, -dum, 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 di-dum-di-dum. I knew I was gonna regret this. Dum, dum, di-dum, di-dum, dum, -dum, dum. Alan Shockley argues that the repetitions of the verse throughout the second chapter of the Napoleon Symphony, quote, is a musical, not a novelistic device. The distillation of the verse into meaningless syllables retains, recalls the sound, not the meaning. And Napoleon sings or taps his music, making moments that other characters hear within the world of the novel. The passage also manipulates the reader. Not only do the other generals present hear Napoleon singing, the reader also hears this sound. But although the words are sometimes said to be sung, Burgess never provides a melody for them in the novel. And he does, of course, provide tunes in other books, such as M.F. He does, though, in the accompanying essay, Bonaparte and E-flat, published in This Man of Music. It is, of course, the melody quoted by Rizzi and Strauss. Oui. Now, can you read this? Anyone fancy a sing-along? Feel free to help me out. There he lies, exsanguinated time, front. Oh, bloody, bloody time, (laughs) see how the sin bloom doth incarnadine his skin from the shin to the chin. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Whereas Ritzy added the musical theme to his picture as if to provide a soundtrack, here Burgess attaches words, necessarily clumsily, to Beethoven's theme. Is that the sound that Shockley thinks the reader hears? If we don't, has the novel somehow failed, or has Beethoven's music? According to Burgess's essay, most art is failure, but art that does not risk failure is not worth attempting. Failure haunts biographies, and possibly also biographers, The struggle to create art, the risk of failure, can make for a good story, but a still more captivating one is that of overcoming challenges, to triumph against the odds to reach for the stars. Beethoven's biographies are rife with such narratives, from his escaping his overbearing alcoholic father to his composing despite his deafness. His difficult relationship with his nephew Karl, who found his uncle so overbearing he attempted suicide, is acknowledged but somehow subsumed within explanations of Beethoven's social isolation in the last decade of his life, when the aristocratic circles that had supported his earlier career had fallen apart because of financial and political ruin or illness. The composer's own poor health and cantankerousness only exacerbated the situation. Burgess began the review I mentioned earlier, Maynard Solomon's... of of, Sorry. Burgess began his review, which I mentioned a while back, of Maynard Solomon's mammoth and contentious biography of Beethoven with a lengthy and problematic reflection on the connection between an artist's body and the body of their work. He wrote, Musical composition, more than any other creative activity, shows how far the imagination can function independently of the rest of the human complex. Frederick Delius, Blind and Paralysed, produced fine music. Beethoven, deaf, cirrhotic, diuretic, dyspneal, Manic produced the finest and healthiest music of all time. This is not, of course, to say that the composer's art operates totally in its own autonomous world. Delius found it necessary to tell his amanuensis, Eric Fenby, that those long-held D major string chords have something to do with the sea and sky, and the wind arabesques could be seagulls. Gustav Mahler put trivial hurdy-gurdy tunes in his, in his symphonies until Freud, Between Trains, told him why. Although, which I love, as a line, um, although Beethoven's music is about sounds and structures, it is also, in ways not easily demonstrable, about Kant and the tyrant at Schoenbrunn and Beethoven himself, body, soul, and blood and guts. To read Beethoven's biography is to learn something about what his music is trying to do. Not much, but something. To learn something, but probably not much. It's a useful caution to the ambitious biographer, determined to illuminate the music through the life and historical context, if not the life through the music. The works of Beethoven's final years, the Piano Sonatas and String Quartets, composed after 1815, and the Mrs. Solemnis, despite seeming to become more and more abstract, tend to garner ever more biographical explanations. The words of the Ninth Symphony, the words that that he resorts to in the Ninth Symphony, The Ode to Joy, suggests a yearning for brotherhood, for togetherness the composer no longer enjoyed. It's often assumed that an artist's last works bear marks of their awareness of their impending mortality. Beethoven had already contemplated death in his Heiligenstadt Testament of 1802, as he defied his deafness and set out on a new path, of which the Third Symphony, the Eroica, is the quintessential example. The qualities of his music from the 1820s that make it late are perhaps best explained as a distillation of elements that are already there, experimentation, fragmentation, repetition, unusual sonorities and extended length. Most of his contemporaries thought their exaggeration to be the result of illness and eccentricity, if not madness. Only as the decades passed did his late works begin to be heard as profound, at the start of something new, rather than of diminishing powers. Beethoven's music is never just about his life, of course. Grand claims made for his art considered odds with mundane circumstances. Take the words written beneath the main theme of the last movement of the string quartet, Opus 135. Which you probably can't see, um, but maybe you can. It looks um, rather like a simpler version of Burgess's words to the Eroica theme in the second chapter of the Napoleon Symphony. So you have the melody, and then you have underneath in German... Must it be? It must be. It must be. And this is written into the score. And the question really is actually, who is this for? The players? The audience can't see the inscription. But the import of the question and answer has been much debated. The character Tomáš in Milan Kundera's novel, The Unvariable Likeness of Being, recounts the story that Beethoven had reminded a certain Dempshire that he owed him 50 florins. Dempshire heaved a mournful sigh and said, es sein? To which Beethoven replied with a hearty laugh, Es muss sein, and immediately jotted down these words and their melody, which became a canon for four voices.
3: Es Es muss sein, es muss sein, es muss sein.
2: A year later, it became a motif in the last movement of Opus 135. By then, Beethoven had forgotten the debt... And the words had assumed a greater magnitude. Mm-hmm. German is a language of heavy words, Pandera reminds us, which can turn frivolous inspiration into a serious quartet, a joke into a metaphysical truth. There are many variants of the story behind the difficult resolution carl holtz beethoven's amanuensis and the second violin in the quartet that premiered many of his late works as the detail that ignaz Dempscher was a musical amateur who had asked for the parts to play opus 130 however as he hadn't attended the work's premiere beethoven refused unless he paid the 50 florins due for a subscription to the concert series seems quite in character Schindler thought the question and answer derived from an exchange between Beethoven and his housekeeper or with a publisher. Moritz Schlesinger, who published Opus 135 decades later, recalled, he said, very clearly, a letter from Beethoven explaining that Muss es pertained to his misfortune in having to make a fair copy of his score himself, must I? These everyday explanations from Beethoven's contemporaries have since been overlain with the heavy metaphysics Kundera invoked. It's in part a question of how the words are said. They're not just in German, and known only by those in the know, they are in German music that is now taken very seriously. sein has become a question about fate, life, death, and beyond. Burgess admitted that one challenge of using Beethoven's Third Symphony as a model for his novel about Napoleon was that the second chapter had to be about the death of the hero? How to pick up again after that? You could say that a similar challenge faces all biographers, historically if not necessarily structurally. We hear Beethoven's music, knowing his life seems, uh, knowing how his life seems to have ended, shaking his fist at the heavens, according to one famous account. The Beethoven we hear and most value today tends to be the late, now considered great works, and the third, fifth, seventh, and ninth symphonies. Their more reticent, even-numbered companions, like other crowd-pleasing classical works, are now not thought of as representative. Historically, we conceive of lives backwards, knowing what happened afterwards, as there were reassessments and revelations, and a kind of selective amnesia about the parts no longer to our taste. Something of this awareness can be felt in another novel Burgess published in 1974, um, it was obviously a good year, that killed off his hero, as it turned out, peremptorially. The third Enderby novel, The Clockwork Testament, finds the dyspeptic poet in New York. Enderby leaves his apartment cautiously, well-wrapped against what he took to be the February cold, and thinking enviously of his old enemy, Rawcliffe, who, he says, had got death over with them, he was, in a sense, lucky. Enderby continues, perhaps posthumous life was better than the real thing. Oh God, yes, I remember Enderby, Enderby, what a man, eater, drinker, wencher, and such foreign adventures. You could go on living without all the trouble of still being alive. Your character got blurred and mingled with those of other dead men, wittier, handsomer, themselves more vital now that they were dead. And there was one's work, good or bad, but still a death cheater. Ere perennius, and it was no vain boast, even for the lousiest sonneteer that the muse had ever farted on. It wasn't death that was the trouble, of course. It was dying. What to die to, if not for, preoccupies Enderby. Retreating from a bar into the subway, he claims not to fear the, quote, noisy ethnic people at the station, having committed himself to a world in which pure and simple aggression was to be accepted as part of the human fabric. Die, with Beethoven's ninth howling and crashing away, or live in a safe world of silly clockwork music. He gets involved in a grotesque fight, protecting a nun from attack by a group of young men who might be related to Alex and his droogs from Clockwork Orange. But Enderby does not emerge glorious. He's berated for carrying a concealed weapon and hurried off the train. As in the earlier novel, Beethoven's glorious ninth is elided with visceral aggression. His is a howling human music, not a clockwork music box. But the clockwork music box can still play Beethoven. I'd like to end with something that Will kindly shared with me from the archive. It's a brief audio recording of Burgess playing Beethoven's Ode to Joy on an electronic keyboard. How far this is removed from that arrangement of the heroic Scherzo I played earlier, designed for domestic consumption, I'll let you think about. Um, I hope you'll be able to hear this clearly enough. Um, after noodling around for a while, um, he asked if it's a bit horrible, And then um, if the tape is, if they can actually record it, the tape is already running. Do you want to hear? He's asked, no, yes, I do want to hear. It's one of those outtake moments that's compelling because it gives a glimpse of conversations overheard, of private practice spilling over what, into what in this context becomes something like public display. It's the kind of thing, an insight, a biographer might hope for, a trace of the real, but then probably doesn't know quite what to do with does it tell us something about beethoven and burgess possibly but i'll let you tell me what
1: All right, well, let's try to record this, shall we? We're all doing it again. I have recorded it. Oh, no, 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 no! wipe it off. I don't want to wipe it off. Please, please. Do, please. I, do you want to hear?
3: No, I don't want Yes, I do want to hear. Hmm? Yes, hold.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You've been listening to the International Anthony Burgess Foundation Podcast. The paperback of Laura Tunbridge's book, Beethoven, A Life in Nine Pieces, is published by Penguin and is out now. For more information about Anthony Burgess, and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this podcast, why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?